The Start On Demand. On demand. Today on The Start, for our small town salute, we went to Dauphin, which has significant Ukrainian heritage. And we spoke to a proud Ukrainian-Canadian, Stephen Jadik, who explained to us just what Slava Ukraine means. You may have seen the hashtag on social media. You may have heard the term used, but maybe you didn't know what it means. Well, he very proudly explains what it means, and it was actually quite emotional to hear. We've been talking this week about downtown development. We heard from Angela Matheson of Center Venture, who actually surprised us with some news about the Bay. And what are the annoying things that keep you up at night? As you will hear in a moment, Loren had some issues last night. I'm Brett McGarry, alongside Greg Mackling and Loren McNabb. We are Mackling, McGarry, and McNabb. And this is the Thursday, March 3rd podcast for The Start. Mackling, McGarry, and McNabb, thank you very much for joining us this morning on The Start. And of course, we have much to discuss today on Ukraine and uh, some Manitoba connections as well. And we'll get into that in a moment. But uh, I I think I need to start uh, with a a note of concern for our colleague, Loren. I understand you were were kept awake at night by uh, some auditory torture. You don't have to be too concerned. I'll I'll live. But listen, like we all don't sleep that well, or at least I shouldn't speak for you two, but I rarely have can wake up until I have a had a great night's sleep. But uh last night Okay, I'm gonna derail this a bit. I bought a plant yesterday at Costco. Hey! And it <laughs> it's a tropical plant. And it only spent forty seconds outside going from the store to the car and then, you know, another ten from the car to the house. And it's dead. And so I tried to bring it back to life. No, I just, it's outrageous. Like, I cannot believe that amount, that little amount of cold air. It's a tropical plant. I get it's used to the tropics. I don't really know why I even bought it. But so last night I filled the tub in the bathroom and to make it nice and steamy in there. And thought I'd put the plant in there for a bit to, you know, simulate Amazon. And... Um, <laughs> This, you know. this story is way better than the way you presented it in the text so, message this morning. So then I forgot about the plant being in the bathroom and went to bed. Plant's still dead, by the way. And I wake up at like, I don't know. I don't know what time it is. You know, like you get, I get like a good three to four hours usually, but I, I'm always up at some point in the night. It's very rare that I sleep like from head down to alarm. And I just hear this drip. Drip. And I'm like, ah, the tub, the plant. And then I'm like, no, I, it's not that loud. Like, you know, you, you convince yourself you're going to be able to sleep through it. And so you turn the other way, like as if you're, if you put your head down the other way, your your ear won't be as close to the bathroom. I don't know what I'm thinking. Drip. Turn your back drip. on it. Yes. <laughs> you put a pillow over your head. Like you're awake now. Like you're fully awake. But in my mind, if I take too long, if I get up to try to solve the problem, then I'm up, up. Now I'm only half up. I don't want to be up, up. I want to be half up and fall back asleep. Well, I never fell back asleep. I'm exhausted. Plant's still dead. Tub is still full of water. And I'm angry. So we're going to continue sort of talking about that later, Brett. That's right. At 645, 
we're going to discuss the annoying things that keep you awake or the things you just refuse to deal with because the solution seems more daunting. How long have you been awake, by the way? Like, what time? Oh, did I don't happen? know. Like, one, I'm guessing. It's not okay. outrageously long. Like, Do you have a stroller, Loren, kicking around anywhere? I'm thinking like you could take Like a baby stroller? Oh. Yeah, you could take the plant to the tropical house at the at the Cinnaboyne Park. Yeah, Zoo walk and, it around. Take, yeah, walk it around. Maybe you bring it back to life in there. I just can't believe it. A side note, if anyone has any advice to to revive this plant, let me know. But um, no, I don't have a stroller. So I'm just going to let it slowly have its last gasp of air today, and then we'll see what happens. All right. So more on that at 645 and how you can win yourself two tickets for the Cottage Country's Lake and Cabin Show at Red River Exhibition Park. And speaking of tickets, Greg Mackling at 845 is it sold out? Are we? Does that mean no more Greg Mackling on TV? <laughs> that, well, I know a lot of you would like that to be the case. <laughs> it will sell out today if it hasn't already sold out. As of midnight last night, there were less than 100 single tickets left for the St. Boniface Hospital Foundation Mega Million Choices Lottery. So we will find out. If not before then, we will find out at 8.50 this morning, if the last ticket is gone, and the 50-50, thank you, Manitoba, for your support on this. It is over $1.5 million. This is the largest 50-50 jackpot in the history of our province, and it's by quite a bit. So thank you for purchasing your tickets, the support for St. B. It's absolutely uh, overwhelming. So we will uh, get some, hopefully, some final statistics from Karen Fowler uh, just before 9 o'clock this morning. Another impressive showing from generous Manitoba on that front. And on the Ukraine front, in our next segment, we're going to hear from Global's Mercedes Stevenson. She is in Latvia looking how training is intensifying for Canadian troops amid Russia's invasion of Ukraine. At 7.07, we're going to hear from Global's Mike Armstrong, who is in Poland, speaking to a Canadian, specifically a Canadian woman who flew to Poland to help Ukrainian refugees. And And uh, later on at 9.35, we are going to speak to the author of a book, Greg, who uh, we're going to sort of draw a parallel here about Canadians who fought in uh, the Spanish Civil War. That's right. Uh, 1,700 Canadians or so took it upon themselves, despite their Canadian government not wanting them to do so. The Canadian military wasn't involved in any way, but they said, no, this is important to us. We're going to fight uh on 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 the side of the the rebels essentially in spain so we will learn about their motivation their experience what it was like there when it when they came back uh it's a fascinating story uh one that uh maybe a lot of canadians don't know about and uh loren at seven thirty seven. before i forget to mention this as well for our small town salute and actually david aiken who's a, a wizard during elections with the map with the uh, the federal electoral map yesterday, I saw him tweet out where Ukrainians are heavily populated in Canada, and he did so on the federal electoral map. And I, it looked like the biggest chunk was in Manitoba, in western Manitoba, and that's where we're heading at 735. Well, we normally do our small town salute every Thursday at 735, and we thought this week it was fitting to speak to some of the people within our smaller communities with deep, deep Ukrainian connections. And I don't know if you'll find a community with more Ukrainian connections than Dauphin, 
Manitoba, about uh, oh an hour and a half north of Brandon. And uh, it's a beautiful, beautiful city, lovely uh, community right near Lake Dauphin, and they've got some deep connections there. I think I read last night some quarter of the population in Dauphin still speaks Ukrainian. They have a Ukrainian immersion pro- program there, much like they do in some schools in Winnipeg. And we're going to talk to a guy who who's really feeling it, like so many Ukrainian Canadians. He's got connections back in Ukraine, but also really is trying to keep the heritage alive in his community. And last night they organized a rally there in Dauphin. Uh, and we're going to check in to hear about how that went, how he's doing, and a bit more about how, why, why so many ended up settling in in Dauphin. Mackling, McGarry, and McNabb, Loren revealed to us today she was kept awake last night by one of the most annoying sounds on earth when you are trying to sleep. And this was a result of her buying a tropical plant yesterday at Costco. And uh, she brought it. It was outside for like 30 seconds. And it, it basically, it, looks, it appears to have died. And uh, she tried to, to take some evasive action. Create my own greenhouse. Yes, that's right. So turned on the bathtub, <laughs> steamed up the bathroom a little bit. And then later on at night... The tap started dripping, and I'd, I'd let, let me just see if anything... Oh, here we go. Is this an actual recording of what you heard No, I didn't think my husband would appreciate it if I burst into the bathroom and started recording sounds in there uh, at 4 a.m. Um, this is actually not... It was more like the intermittent. I just took this off YouTube, but I wanted to have the effect. It was like the drip, and then 30 seconds would pass, and then it would drip again. And then five seconds would pass, and it would drip again. And then sometimes there would be longer gaps. You'd convince yourself that it had fixed itself. But no. <laughs> but did I get up to fix it? No. Did I get up to shut the door? No. I just lay there convincing myself that it was too much effort, that I would be too awake if I got up and fixed it. So I just dealt with it, and now I'm angry, Lorette. Okay, so we need you to text us at 204-780-6868 about the annoying things that keep you up at night. Or if you want to take it one step further, what are the things you put up with because the solution seems more daunting? Very quickly, Greg. So my garage door has not been functioning. I'm not talking about the man door. I'm talking about the double door that goes up and down so that you can park your car in the garage, theoretically. Uh, it's been broken all winter. And finally yesterday, <laughs> I phoned somebody to come and fix it because I'm done. But the idea of somebody coming over to the house and having to be here for the service call and not really having an understanding of how much it might cost or not cost has been standing in the way of me making the phone call. I'm pretty happy with the cost estimate. And so they're finally coming today, but it also is going to mean a bunch more work because now, of course, Jackie's going to want the car inside the garage now that the door works. So it's just been easier for it to be broken. 204-780-6868. We've got two tickets for Cottage Country's Lake and Cabin Show at Red River Exhibition Place from March 18th to 20th. Tell us a story for a chance to win. We'll pick a winner at 915. Let's go around the horn here. Start with uh, Jeff Braun. I had a leaky kitchen faucet, and a buddy. I bought a new faucet, and a buddy of mine came over. He's a handy guy, and we, between the two of us, figured we could figure out how to fix it. And we realized there was a larger plumbing issue involved, and we couldn't fix it. And that was, I think, in 2016. 
And then in 2020, I finally got it, called a plumber to come over and get it fixed. So I spent four years with a dripping faucet. I had to put a pot underneath the sink to catch the drips every day and empty it out at the end of the day kind of thing. And uh, that went on for four years before I finally called. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. That is a commitment to the the laziness on that. Poitras, what about you? Cameron Poitras. My my buddy who uh, I think we're going out for Filipino breakfast this weekend, Lynn. And if you're listening, I haven't forgotten, but uh, he had a, a drip in his in his bathtub that when I walked in, I said, what is going on here? And he goes, well, it's just a small, uh, small leak. It was like a waterfall coming out of this. That's costing you three hundred dollars at least every single month in 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 a water bill. But anyways, uh, and he, I think he finally has got it fixed. But in terms of keeping me up at night, unless it's something like Darcy and Stacy on TLC, I can't go to sleep with the television on. I think it's a bad habit. My wife disagrees. Ah, uh, <laughs> yes, yeah. I um, I have a hard time falling asleep. Well, in bed, I have a hard time falling asleep. It's weird. I can fall asleep on the couch in front of the TV, sitting up, uh, but in bed, uh, I, if the TV's on, I just cannot cannot sleep because I just want to watch the TV. Yep. So that's uh, that 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 onto its own is a is a fun conversation. Producer Jeff Forte back in the saddle after a couple of days off. What about you? Oh, for me, it'd be the clogged nostril. You know, your left nostril be clogged, and then you roll over to the right, the and then your right nostril is clogged. And like, I could easily get up and like go blow my nose, maybe put a little, uh, you know, Vicks uh, underneath my nose to help clear it up. But no, I just I'll, I'll lie in bed with you know a clogged nostril for a couple of hours till I finally get up and I finally go blow my nose and clear Keep it up. A box of Kleenex by the bed. Well, no. Why? Because I, I keep my Kleenex in my in my, my uh, walk-in closet. It's well, just you you keep it in your like you, you keep an open box in the walk-in closet. Yes. Well, I, that's the uh, that's the nose blowing area. It's been established. <laughs> Everything has because there's no place. garbage in my room. So what am I going to do with the dirty Kleenex? After? Put it, throw it on the floor and pick can. it up. In the Get a garbage can. <laughs> That takes up room. Whatever. Wait, wait, wait. You have a walk-in closet, but you don't have room in the bathroom. No, like my my, my walk-in closet. I'm talking about my walk-in storage closet where I keep my mop and my broom and my vacuum. That's where I keep my Kleenex. That's where I keep my Kleenex. I'm going to, you can get like a $4 garbage can at dollar store. I'm shipping one to you now for goodness sakes. All right, I'll take it. I'll take it. (laughs) It takes up room. Oh, 4G. You're a gem. Mackling, McGarry, and McNabb coming up at 7.35. It's our small town salute. We do this every Thursday just after Global News at 7.30. We visit somewhere outside of the city of Winnipeg. And today we are heading to a part of Manitoba with significant Ukrainian heritage. We're going to Dauphin, which is the home of Canada's National Ukrainian Festival. So that's coming up at 7.35. But right now we want to talk about how Hundreds of thousands of Ukrainians have fled, and more are expected, though getting out, Greg, is getting much harder. Yeah, yeah, so true, Brett. The UN Refugee Agency estimates more than 874,000 Ukrainians have now crossed into neighboring countries since Russia attacked. Well over half of them are in Poland. The Polish government says a further 50,000 Ukrainians are arriving every day, Loren. 
That's a staggering number when you consider we're a week into this and, and, and no end in sight. Global's Mike Armstrong is also in Poland. He's stationed about 100 kilometers from the Ukrainian border. And that's where Canada's foreign affairs minister also is, as well as other Canadians who are really feeling like they should step up and help this flood of people who have left everything behind. It's a tiny one-bedroom apartment that's not actually home to anyone living in it but it's safe. They are four adults and five children from Ukraine who've escaped the war to Poland. They're basically the guests of the woman who rented the apartment, Heidi Bachman, a farmer from Bentley, Alberta. She's Canadian with Ukrainian heritage and says that pulled her here. These are my people. You know, if, if my family hadn't, if my family would have stayed put in Odessa, you know, a hundred years ago, this would be me. This, this, is, this is me. These are my people. Now, just days ago, these children were hiding in bunkers. They're young, but they still understood the explosions around them meant danger. Flying, she covers her ears. The news coming out of their hometown isn't good. The Russian military says it is now in control of the city of Kherson, and the videos coming out of it seem to back that up. They're Russian soldiers on familiar streets. The Ukrainians in this apartment left behind their parents, brothers and sisters, almost everyone they knew. This woman's husband said goodbye at the border and turned back to help others escape. Too many people call, uh, help, help, He's please, a lot of calls please, to... please, please help, help, um, but... Uh, Sometimes he cannot. Okay, all done. Now, Bachman met these families almost by chance. They referred to her by a stranger. She financed the first part of her trip by selling a load of grain. The rest is coming from friends who heard about what she's doing. Every time I look at my bank account, it has more money in it. Yes. Coming here, Bachman thought she'd be helping orphans, possibly move to Canada. It turned out the kids came with parents. The goal now is to help until they can go home. With her son rubbing her back, this woman says she doesn't know when that will be or if her loved ones will still be alive. We have a truly cruel war, she says. Now, also in this city on this day, Canada's foreign affairs minister. Melanie Jolie met with staff from Canada's embassy in Ukraine. They should be in Kyiv. When safety became an issue, they were relocated to western Ukraine and then eventually moved outside the country to here. The minister says the staff is working to help about 1,200 Canadians still stuck in Ukraine escape. Providing uh, even in terms of uh, travel itineraries, uh, making sure that people understand what's the best way to get to Poland. Logistics. Uh, logistics. Now, as for that 1,200 number, the minister says it's likely even higher. Not all Canadians register when they travel, and that makes helping them harder. As I understand it, uh, you guys, I don't think there's been a refugee camp established in Poland or any of these other countries. As I understand it, there are facilities, including a shopping center, in Poland, just inside the border with Ukraine, that's been converted sort of to a refugee reception center. And then quite quickly, families, um, children, women, they are taken in by families in Poland, or they maybe use a, an unrented flat, or maybe they even, in that report, I think the woman said she was renting a flat from somebody in Poland. So 
this is uh, this is unusual in terms of what we see with these mass events when it comes to refugees. And you know, I can't imagine too many of these people wanting to leave the European continent right now. But Loren, I can't help but think that Canada should have one or two planes there on standby for mm. those that maybe want to come? Like, is it time for us to be offering that as an option for some of these refugees to come to Canada, at least temporarily? I've wondered if what's been happening with the response just has to do with the time and the fact that, are there, was there a consideration a week ago? Well, well maybe this will only last a couple of days or maybe the damage will be minimal and therefore people will want to go back home, right? The more pictures you see from what's happening there, there might be there's there's blocks of buildings destroyed homes destroyed and so people who fled who might have initially thought a week ago we just need a couple days or we just need a couple weeks well that picture might be changing dramatically for them in terms of if they'll go home if they'll want to go home if if they'll be a home to go to so i think that might be part of the equation i know yesterday there was supposed to be a news conference in Ottawa with, of course, Christian Freeland, uh, the Minister of Defence, Anita Anand, and of course, Sean Fraser, who's the Minister of Immigration. That news conference was cancelled and, and it's supposed to happen this morning. So whether that news conference will include an announcement about maybe changes to immigration or refugee policies or additional aid or help remains to be seen. But obviously, something more has to be done. Yeah, I know Heather Stephenson at the, uh, at the uh, demonstration on uh, Saturday night said that she was going to be working with the federal government to implement and accelerate some of those applications so Ukrainians could come to Manitoba under the provincial nominee program. So I, I know that from this end, there is, you know, there is pressure being applied to the Canadian government to say, hey, Manitoba is prepared to do whatever we can. We'll, we'll take as many people as, as you'll allow uh, to come here. Mackling, McGarry, McNabb, we're asking you at 204-780-6868, what are the annoying things that keep you awake at night, whether it's a sound, or what are some of the things where you just kind of tolerate them because the solution just seems too daunting? And Trev sent us a text simply with an image that says, me, I'm about to go to sleep. My dog, however... It's especially big. It's not so bad with little dogs, but big dogs. Yeah. With a big sloppy tongue, just yeah. lapping up that water. Or the scratching. Like, I remove his collar at night because it seems to just jangle just right. Like, it's like he scratches and gets as close to a wall as possible. And then everything is just bang, 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 bang. And his tail's going and his paws going and the collar's shaking. And you're like, mouse. The <laughs> Did anyone see you. Sandy's text? Oh, yes. What did yeah, Sandy have to say? creepy. The chewing of the mouse in the ceiling above our bed in the middle of the night is not only annoying, it creeps me out. We live in an old house. The addition was added on but built on the ground and mice seem to get up into the ceiling. The thought of a mouse falling on my head creeps me out every time and keeps Sandy up. That's her annoying sound. Oh, my God. That's that's awful. Just took it a whole other level, Sandy. Well, because that does, it's not just the sound that keeps you up, but it's the possibilities, right? Because yes. if, the, if the mice, if you can, if they can just stay out of the way, okay. But if they get in, like the, the mo- one of the, the, the uh, most unnerving things I found in my previous apartment when I lived on Cordon, I found evidence that 
mice had been under my sink and sort of foraging around on the bottom shelf. Thankfully, they didn't get out. They couldn't get out because I guess the cabinet doors were too heavy. But to know that there were mice, there had been mice in there, right? that's scary because once they get out, <laughs> that can be a huge problem. I mean, have you ever seen the movie, what is it, Mouse Hunt, Greg? Or mo- yeah. No, I've not seen the movie Mouse Hunt. We had a mouse in our house when I was little and I only ever once had a mouse scurry across my pillow and the sound <gasps> of his little claws oh, on the cotton pillowcase, no. maybe inches from my head. Yeah, I, oh. did, 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 it was a long time ago. I still remember it. <laughs> oh, what? <laughs> uh, Thanks, Sandy. <laughs> Keep those coming. At 204-780-6868, the annoying things that keep you awake at night or the annoying things that you put up with just because you, quite frankly, just don't want to deal with. It is time for our small town salute. There are plenty of neighborhoods and communities with Ukrainian connections in this province. After all, Manitoba is home to some 180,000 people who identify as Ukrainian-Canadian. And one of the largest and earliest block settlements of Ukrainian immigrants came in Dauphin. So a century later, well over a century later, when they first started arriving in that community, which is about three and a half hours northwest of Winnipeg, that huge connection to Ukraine remains. A quarter of the population, according to the last census, speaks Ukrainian. Some, Like some Winnipeg neighborhoods, there's Ukrainian immersion schools, and Canada's National Ukrainian Festival in Dauphin is also one of the largest and longest-running festivals in this whole continent. So there is so much pride in Dauphin. And then, of course, with everything that's been happening over the past past couple of weeks, it's safe to say that there also is a lot of pain for people there. Stephen Jadik lives in the Dauphin area. He's a proud Ukrainian-Canadian and joins us this morning. Good morning, Stephen. Good morning. I want to talk to you about, I know you helped organize a rally last night in support of Ukraine, and we want to get to that in a moment. But if you could, can you tell us about what you know about what drew so many Ukrainians or drew your family, drew your grandparents to Dauphin? Uh, you know what? It was just uh, the lands that were opening up that were available for settlement and where the railway went at the time. Uh, most people, uh, immigrants arrived into Winnipeg and then they would set out uh, from Winnipeg uh, to the other uh, more rural areas. And one of them was uh, in the, the Dauphin area. And it's interesting because uh, when the Ukrainians settled here, of course, they would uh, name uh, some of their communities after uh, their their home regions. And actually, where my grandma or my baba was born, a place in Manitoba called Ukraina, which is Ukraina, which is Ukraine. So uh, you could actually have uh, somebody uh, born in Ukraine, but uh, not have uh, uh, Ukrainian citizen citizenship because uh, they were born in Ukraine, Manitoba. <laughs> wow, this is uh, fascinating. And uh, Stephen, obviously, uh, we want to send our, our heart and our best wishes to you and to any family, uh, distant or otherwise, in Ukraine. How important is this heritage when it comes to education? It's a conversation we have uh, so often when it comes to uh, Indigenous languages in our provinces and, and the storytelling and keeping those 
those histories alive, keeping the Ukrainian history alive and that connection to Ukraine? Why, why do you think it's so important? Absolutely. You know, the, the phrase always is, is that language is the key to culture and it remains that way. So you need to learn the language. You need to speak the language to be able to understand it and to really appreciate the culture deeply. And I think that's uh, a great opportunity for those in and around Dauphin where we have the opportunity to have students uh, be educated in the English-Ukrainian bilingual program uh, that uh, is available uh, in uh, our schools uh, in Dauphin. Last night, you helped organize a rally in support of Ukraine. How did that go? Uh, That went very well. It was awesome to see so many community people out to to support us. It was cold. It was minus 20, and it was uh, uh, high humidity, so it was that chill-to-the-bone cold. But Mm -hmm. everyone was there and uh, who wanted to be there. They had signs uh, showing their support for Ukraine. And it also gave the community voice to be able to come out as a group and and sort of uh, cry on each other's shoulder and uh, for that the pain that everyone is feeling with what's happening in Ukraine right now. Stephen, I was talking to you yesterday and we were sharing the fact that, you know, there are so many people who might have never been there before, um, but but have that familial connection or just connection because their neighbor uh, might be of a Ukrainian descent. And, and you were describing just how it sort of... Uh, it feels that that connection and the pain that you've been experiencing. Can you just talk a bit about that and the connection that you have, regardless of the generations that have passed since your ancestors first came here? Yeah, absolutely. You know, it's it's hard to describe, but it's almost like uh, you feel it in your bones. It's a it's a visceral thing. It's like something that you just. It's the terribleness of what's going on, and it, it affects you so much. And uh, that's what everybody in our community is feeling. At the rally last evening, uh, we had various dignitaries uh, giving speeches and, and, uh, and short words, and uh, many of them were just breaking down and, and uh, you know, showing their emotion uh, for everyone to see because, and even if they don't have Ukrainian roots to Ukraine, but they're in uh, the Dauphin area and uh, they realize what uh, what is going on and and the suffering that people are feeling so no we we really uh we really appreciate uh that and we really feel it Stephen, we were saying yesterday that ukrainian culture has become manitoba culture and vice versa so if there are more stories that you'd like to share with us and and messages you need to get out please keep in touch with us okay and and all the best yeah, absolutely. I know that uh, I was uh, just texting with uh, individuals in Ukraine just this morning. They're hanging on. I, I, I've talked to, texted with some people in Kiev. The bombs are coming down, and, but they're, they're holding out. And, and, and we are just so buoyed up by the, the bravery of the Ukrainian people at this time. And it makes us all proud to, to trace our, our heritage back to Ukraine. And before we let you go, Stephen, uh, Lorenz got one more question for you. Well, I just know that you, you speak Ukrainian and you've been uh, making sure that young people in Dauphin and elsewhere carry on this language. And I noticed all across social media and around the world, people are saying or posting Slava Ukraine. And so th- that's a national salute, Stephen. Like, do you know a bit more about its origins? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Slava Ukraini, uh, glory to Ukraine. And the response to that, heroim Slava, to the hero's glory. And uh you know, I don't think there's a, a, a more fitting way to uh, 
to end off this uh, conversation and by by signing off with with that uh it is uh as far as i know it uh it may have had its origins in uh way back when uh back in the 1920s when uh, ukraine was uh forming its independence for the first time uh and uh, it's used now as a rallying cry uh for for ukraine and and for those heroes each ukrainian citizen that is defending it uh uh, to their death uh, at times, and it's uh, it, it, it is sad, but it's uh, it's a rallying cry. And uh, just to, to to give another story, in 2019, my son and daughter were both in Ukraine. My son was taking a 10-month course on Ukrainian dance and going to different areas of Ukraine and, and studying that. My daughter was teaching English in a private school in Kiev. And I was able to go out and meet them and uh, rent a vehicle and travel around to the the villages where our ancestors came from, and it was just an uh, amazing opportunity and, and uh, an amazing trip. I don't know what I would have done if my kids were there right now. I'd be going crazy, I know, but uh, believe it or not, there are there are kids and families there uh, that are suffering, and so we appreciate every prayer and every thought that's going up. Uh, I had the opportunity to be at the hockey game on Tuesday night where Husley was singing the Ukrainian national anthem and uh, O Canada, it brought the host down. It was amazing. Stephen Jadik lives in the Dauphin area, a proud Ukrainian Canadian. Thank you very much, Stephen. We appreciate this, sir. Slava Ukraini, Heroyam Slava. Mackling, McGarry, and McNabb. Derek was the first to alert us to this, that gas is on the way up. We knew it was coming. We saw that it was uh, jumping in B.C., like Julie pointing out, gas is up to $1.96 a litre in Victoria, according to Julie's daughter, uh, as of yesterday. But in, in Winnipeg, Greg, Derek says it's up to what? A dollar sixty four nine. 165 is Lorenz. She refuses to, to acknowledge the point yeah. one. 163.9. 163.9. Yeah. But I mean, at that nine? point, at this point, I don't know if we're just playing with pennies here, but it, it, these pennies are going to add up, Greg. No question about it. And I'm just, I was looking at a text message from Jeff. So I apologize. I was going by memory there. Uh, Jeff says, Gas is still $1.50 at Deacon's Corner, Petro Canada. I can't believe I'm saying this, but phew. And that's yeah. where we're at. A dollar forty nine nine is a bargain this morning. Some of our listeners saying still one forty two at Costco. I don't know what's happening over on Marion. You've got the Domo and the Mohawk. I think is the uh, one across the street. They're typically three cents per liter lower than anybody else, uh, other than the Costco. So uh, keep us informed. Let us know what you're seeing here. But the impact of this is uh, obviously. Uh, you know, people are going to be thinking about how much driving they're doing. I, I don't think there's any doubt about that. We're, we are approaching a threshold that we've never seen before, and some decisions are going to have to be made if you can, in fact, make those decisions in terms of carpooling or doing anything differently. Todd, sorry, go ahead, Loren. No, I was going to say, and how much higher could it go, right? Like we've had gas experts come on and say, look, there's pent up demand from COVID. And of course, you have the situation in Ukraine. We've been warned for weeks, even prior to this Russian invasion in Ukraine, that, that hikes were coming. And you wonder how much higher it can get. And we asked, we were talking about whether this is a record, Brett, for Winnipeg. And we had said we had thought it was. 
Uh, one of our listeners says actually he thinks in the Gulf War in 1991 it went to 180 a liter in Winnipeg. So I'm just double checking that because I don't recall that, but I also didn't have a license then. Yeah. Brett, but um, man, like the the territory we're in right now is is going to be scary. It's going to be real hitting people hard. Yeah, Todd uh, giving us a screen grab of uh, that gas price website showing that it looks like, and typically it's Shell that seems to be the first one to pull the trigger and uh, and ramp the gas prices up. So a couple of Shell stations, dollar sixty three nine, uh, like Mike saying the dollar sixty three nine on King Edward, the Shell beside the Timmy's there, uh, but it's a handful of Esso stations as well up to a dollar fifty nine, and this indeed has me thinking because you know I might potentially be. In in the market for a new vehicle this year and i was thinking maybe of uh moving from a compact sedan to an suv like not a monster one i don't need a like a marge simpson canyon arrow for example but um you know maybe uh i don't know like a small a small suv like a crv or something but I think I might just stay in the compact sedan because even the last time I filled the, my tank up, I didn't realize the price had jumped from a dollar thirty nine to a dollar forty nine. Wasn't paying attention uh, because it was a dollar thirty nine the day before, um, and uh, the price was seventy five dollars just to fill up my compact sedan. So for anybody who drives like a big pickup truck or a big SUV, I don't even want to think about what you're what it's costing you to put fuel into your tank so let us know what you think 204-780-6868 let us know what you're seeing out there as far as gas prices is concerned like todd saying my ram at a dollar 63.9 is 200 dollars oh oh yeah so it makes me thankful that i really only have to fill up my tank maybe maybe once a month with all the walking i do uh because i walk home from work every day Mackling, McGarry, and McNabb, just very quickly here, we want to mention the fact that we have gas prices on the way up. Derek was the first to alert us of this, $1.63.9 at a gas station on Pemina at the perimeter. We're seeing prices at $1.59.9. Glenn with some interesting and, quite frankly, both hilarious but sad perspective. Glenn says, it's sad when you pull up to a gas station and they ask you if you want to fill and you say, no, just $150, please. Oh, yeah. <laughs> That's a gut punch. Yeah. You mentioned the fact, you know, five or ten bucks could get you going lots of places mm-hmm. back in the day. You hate to be that person, but I remember putting two or three dollars <laughs> in my gas tank to get me through a day or two in a pinch. Uh, that wouldn't get you out of the driveway now. Yeah. I remember stealing purple gas from the farm tank in the old <laughs> yard to get me downtown. So, did it work? Purple like, gas, sure. It was, I think it's illegal to use, and my dad didn't like it when we did that. But you know, <laughs> I don't even know what purple to, gas supposed is. Supposed to be for the farm equipment. <laughs> you roll on over there and just get yourself some gas. Nothing to see here. Hope he's not looking out the window. <laughs> okay, so let can, can you feel free to continue to let us know at two zero four seven eight zero sixty eight sixty eight, and let us know if this is making you think about either A, your driving habits, or B, what you are driving. In the meantime, long before the pandemic hit, 
We were talking about downtown development. For decades, there have been conversations on making it a destination, not just to work or play, but Loren to live. And so, of course, there have been really a lot of positive developments, new buildings, new places to eat and dine, like the Hargrave Market at the Trunor Square. There's new places to live popping up in a couple of locations. And, and we just spoke a few weeks ago to the folks at 300 Main. They're hoping to move tenants in this spring. But there are, of course, always questions about some pretty major real estate that isn't seeing development, like Portage Place or the Bay. Angela Matheson is the president and CEO of Centre Venture and joins us now. Good morning, Angela. Good morning. If I could, I'd like to start with Portage Place because there was so much talk about the redevelopment that was being considered there. Uh, it hit some pretty major snags. Is it stalled or done? It's definitely stalled. I, I would acknowledge that. And I think it had in large part to do with with the scale of the plan, right? And so the proponents uh, were looking for certain levels of support that just, you know, really weren't available to achieve the vision that they had. So I think right now I would assume that um, that group and maybe potentially even others, Lauren, are regrouping to look at what would be a more feasible plan and maybe a more affordable plan to see Portage Place redeveloped. We will ask you about the bay in a moment, Angela, but uh, for me, the scourge of downtown are surface parking lots. And I was out mm-hmm. a couple of weekends ago, was downtown, my one of my favorite restaurants downtown, and I noticed some fencing that is reminiscent of what gets installed when maybe there is a project upcoming. I won't mention the location specifically because I don't want to out anybody here, but are there some, is there some movement with regard to redeveloping some of these surface parking lots now that, you know, less people are downtown for work and maybe less people playing in the downtown? Is it less attractive to own a surface parking lot in downtown Winnipeg? Well, we're really at a pretty interesting time in the downtown and and a lot of this is going to play out as we see people return to work. But I think we acknowledge, and and many companies downtown are already bringing their workers back with announcements to bring more back. But it will be slightly different. I think the pandemic has uh, made a lot of companies uh, think about flex time for their employees, some days at home, some days downtown. So we acknowledge, and we're trying to get ahead of the fact, that it will be a bit different, that that sort of makeup of office downtown. That will have an impact on, you know, the demand on parking for sure. But more important about surface parking lots, and we've been trying to see many of them develop, we've had some successes in the last number of years, is is they don't just, they don't really add to that pedestrian feeling downtown, right? And so uh, last week, in fact, um, and I must give the city of Winnipeg lots of credit for this, they announced a new tax credit program for um, developers uh, who want to redevelop surface parking lots uh, into other uses, and we think primarily residential uses. That's going to be a big big uh, incentive to see those uh, those surface parking lots, many uh, owned by people who do want to see them redeveloped, but the economics are very challenging uh, because it's, uh, it's very lucrative to own a surface parking lot. So, um, yeah, so stay tuned. You are going to see, um, and I'm not sure which one you're talking about, but you are going to see some, some, uh, some digging in the ground and some piles going in on a number of surface parking lots downtown in the next little while. Greg and Loren both referenced the Bay, the empty Bay building. Any word on Anything that might happen there? I'm just going to say that I am very optimistic uh, about the Bay. Um, I think there's a lot of merit in the building. um, And I think in very short order, we're going to hear about um, a successful uh, attempt to redevelop that building. 
I feel like I need to just follow up and say, so when might we hear something? Tell us more, please, Angela. I can't say much more, you guys. But, you know, I, I think since the Bay, uh, you know, went dark in 2020, there's been a really good coalescing of the community around options for that building. Um, it's a tough one. It's very, very large. It's over 600,000 square feet. So to put that in perspective, it's about the size of the Richardson building, more than the Richardson building. So it's a big building to fill, especially in the context of the pandemic. Um, But uh, you're going to see something there that's going to be a mix of uses. And I think it's going to be a very positive, uh, positive project for the downtown. And I would say you're going to see that in the next month or so. Angela Matheson, President and CEO of Centre Venture, joining us live on 680 CJOB. Thank you very much, Angela. We appreciate it. Thanks, guys. Mackling, McGarry and McNabb, before we introduce our next guest, Loren, what have you got for us on temporary expired emergency visas? Well, we were talking this morning about what's going to be done to help Ukrainian Ukrainian refugees get to Canada should they want to. So just within the last half hour, this coming from Ottawa, they're going to allow an unlimited number of Ukrainians to come this con- to, to Canada, but it will be on a temporary basis and it's going to be through expedited emergency visas. Some people were saying, let's get rid of that visa requirement. Well, they're not doing that just yet, but they're going to expedite them. They're going to have a new streamlined kind of approach to get them and have them come to Canada should they want temporarily or maybe even permanently. So that announcement just in within the last hour. And Greg, what are we doing at 9.35? We're going to talk about uh, history and how it relates to today. There are people from all over the world who are putting their hands up and going to Ukraine and fighting in the war against Russia. Well, that's happened in the past. And we're going to talk about Canadians who fought in the Spanish Civil War prior to World War II. And coming up in our next segment, reminder, we are giving away two tickets for Cottage Country's Lake and Cabin Show at Red River Exhibition Place based on your text on the annoying things that keep you up at night or the annoying things that you're just too, quite frankly, lazy to deal with. But right now, we speak to passionate advocates of all sorts on this radio station, and one of the most passionate is our next guest, who's here to talk about something happening this Sunday, World Lymphedema Day. Amanda Sobey is a lymphedema warrior and coach and a fitness coach and joins us now with more. Good morning, Amanda. Hey, good morning, you guys. How's it going? It's going very well. It's great to speak with you again. And of course, you know, the the world is is a difficult place in the broad sense right now. But may I tell you, you brighten my day every single time I go on Instagram or on any of the social media and see you absolutely kicking the backside of lymphedema every single day. You are truly an inspiration, Amanda. Aw, thank you so very much. It's been a long journey, and I'm very privileged and honored to be sitting here today and being able to talk to you guys, so thank you. Well, tell us a little bit about lymphedema and what it is and, and, and how it has impacted your life. So lymphedema is a condition that technically has no cure at this point in time, and it affects your lymphatic system. And for those people who don't know, the lymphatic system is basically the plumbing system for your body. It removes all of the debris and the waste that your cells make. And if you're unable to move this lymphatic fluid, it builds up into very hard 
um, fibrotic tissue. I don't know if people know what fibrosis is, but it's basically scars inside your body that become irreversible and irreparable in your limbs, and it can be in your arms, legs, head, neck, face, genitals, abdomen, anywhere in your body where your lymphatics are compromised. And this fluid continues to build and build and build, and it's irreparable after a certain point in time. And the problem with this is, is that doctors and many uh, medical staff are not trained on the lymphatic system, so it's not diagnosed very early. Um, and also, too, there's no funding for this illness because the government doesn't actually recognize that this is a natural disease. And it's very debilitating. It's incredibly sad. And it just it affects millions of people, approximately 300 million people worldwide. And uh, that's kind of what drives my force. It gets me up in the morning just to create awareness, make education happen, and uh, just try to make a difference. Yeah, I was reading this morning that they estimate, you know, at least 1 million Canadians are inf- impacted by lymphedema. But as you point out, that number is, is not necessarily accurate because of the difficulty of getting that diagnosis. And so therefore, education and awareness becomes really important. What have you been doing this year? It sounds like you've had a pretty, I mean, if I can use the word good, good in raising awareness a year. Definitely. So, yes, it's about a million people uh, in Canada, approximately 38,500 for Manitobans alone. But this disease is often masked by obesity, technically. So I think the numbers are very skewed and I don't think that they're accurate personally. Um, For my efforts, I have become the vice president of the Lymphedema Association of Manitoba. So that's been really exciting. I entered a bodybuilding competition wearing my medical grade compression because part of the therapy and part of the tools that people like myself use is compression. So spandex is back. Um, (laughs) And uh, so again, I got up on stage wearing my compression because I had a very hard time being public with my body, being public with my image. So I did that to create awareness and advocacy. And then obviously as Gary, um, sorry, as uh, I have mentioned that I'm on social media, I do use that as my form to advertise, to create awareness, to use it as advocacy, just to inspire people to kind of accept this condition, educate people, and it reaches worldwide. I'm on all seven continents, which is pretty amazing. So if someone learns for the first time, like if they actually get a diagnosis or maybe even perhaps suspect they're dealing with lymphedema, what can they do to, to fight back as you have? I would say don't just stop at your first doctor's diagnosis. Um, Vascular specialists in our province, they're far and few between actually, so we don't have many vascular specialists here, but they would be the one to diagnose you. And upon that diagnosis, you may be responsible for educating your own doctor, your own GP. So um, this is going to be kind of a whirlwind of an experience because you're going to have to learn about this condition You're going to have to advocate for yourself because, again, the government doesn't fund our tools that we need for our medical needs. And uh, so you're going to have to educate yourself, advocate for yourself, and just don't give up. Start to learn that there's people out there like myself. There's the Lymphedema Association of Manitoba that are here. There's some fabulous therapists in our community. There's some fabulous people that do know and understand this condition, and it's imperative to support yourself and surround yourself with people who know about this so that it gives you hope and it encourages you to do something about this illness. 30 seconds here, Amanda. You've sort of turned this into your superpower, in my opinion. You can correct me if I'm wrong, but what sort of advice do you have to those that might be dealing with other afflictions that sort of feel like the end of the world when you you hear their diagnosis and when they're presented and become a part of your life? 
Great question. Um, do not let the words no cure derail you. Um, just because there is technically no cure, there is still so much that you can do based on health and fitness, nutrition, and just medical supplies. You can do a lot. So please don't let that pull you downwards. Take this as a moment to invest in yourself, give love back to yourself, and just try to rise above and know that you can make a difference and, and live a normal, happy, healthy life even though that you have an incurable disease. What's happening on Sunday, Amanda? On Sunday, come meet me at uh, the Forks Johnson Terminal, South Side Building. We're going to be walking up Broadway and uh, conglomerating at the Legislative Building approximately around 6 p.m. We're going to have a ceremonial speech. We're going to create awareness, and we're going to have awesome blue glow sticks. We're going to try to just get the community involved. It'll be our first public gathering in a very long time, so I'm very excited, and we're just going to create awareness, celebrate World Lymphedema Day, because that's on March the 6th, and we'll be at the Legislative Building at around 6 p.m. And the building will be colored teal in honour of World Lymphedema Day to acknowledge the day. Amanda Silby, thank you so much for joining us to give us a heads up on this. We appreciate it. Thanks, guys. Have a great day. Mackling McGarry McNabb, what keeps you awake at night? The annoying things that keep you awake at night, like uh, the dripping tap that bothered Loren, I guess, early this morning as of about 1 a.m. And uh, Henry, I mean, just dealer's choice here. I've put a whole bunch in our wheel here, our script. Not sure we'll have time to read them all, but uh, one of our runners up, Henry, who says, crickets drive me up the wall. They always climb into ducks and cold air returns and rub their little legs together all night long, and I go and stomp in the vicinity of the noise, and the noise stops, of course, until you hit the pillow. Even our cat gets annoyed with them but can't seem to get at them either. That's got to be the worst because if they're outside, okay, that's annoying, but they're outside, and it's just something that's you you, you got to accept that crickets are going to be out there. But if they're in your home and you can't get to them, I would lose my mind on that. So... Yeah, uh, they're not finding them if you can't find them either, right? Like that noise when you can't locate it. Like we usually we get them in the garage every year, and I feel like I just pace around like trying to find those suckers. Oh, and in the garage too. There's got to be a million places oh, yeah. for them to hide. Oh yeah, it's impossible. Charge them rent. Uh, Loren, where do you want to go next? Who do you want to read next? I think we could go to uh, Linda because I think a lot of people can relate to this. What keeps me awake is the neighbors next door coming in and out at different times from work, and they slam the doors and then the wooden gate like thunder coming through the house yeah like that can be when you're on different shifts or different times and people are coming home the slamming drives you nuts just be considerate don't be an inconsiderate neighbor uh greg where do you want to go next how about shannon shannon says things that keep me awake at night my teenage son playing video games laughing joking jumping around clapping his hands man he sounds like he's having a blast but really hard to sleep through all the excitement. It's <laughs> annoying. Yes, Shannon, uh, I'm aware. Three floors down, I can hear my wonderful children doing exactly the same thing. Uh, I get it. I go to bed <laughs> at an unreasonable hour. However, tone it down. Pipe down down there, eh? And sometimes they're so loud. You're like, are you having fun? Like, I can't tell because they're oh, screaming. Oh, yeah. And, yes. you know, like, you're like, is this, I can't, is someone dying downstairs? And one of the kids hit each other. But no, you get down there and they're just laughing. But you think, oh, like, yeah. literally that something terrible has occurred. And, oh, yeah. it drives you nuts. Dave says, my cat likes to gnaw on the corners of plastic containers. I had a small one on the floor in my room just holding some pens and paperwork. And one time in the middle of the night, cat just wouldn't let up. I must have thrown every pillow off the belt and yelled, pssst, 
at her 20 times before finally getting out of bed to put the box in the closet. It's funny when I think about it now, but not when you're trying to sleep. I was super annoyed. And that's the funny thing about all this. We just won't, we refuse to get up and just deal with it because we think we can sleep through it. But the Earl of Eli, Dan, is our winner. Greg, what is Dan? What keeps Dan awake at night? Silence, says Dan. Before I joined the military, everything kept me awake. When I was serving with the army and we were in the field, the constant hum of the generators would help me sleep like a baby. But when they stopped, I would wake up immediately. As usual, an attack was about to happen as the enemy forces were close and the generators were turned off so our position wouldn't be given away. As for my time in the Navy, I would wake up as soon as the ship's ventilation was turned off. I was up and out off off bed as the ventilation being turned off meant the ship was on fire or there was about to be a fire drill to this day i can sleep through anything i've slept through artillery fire and earthquakes i sleep with a ceiling fan for noise and wake up every time the power goes off wow that's crazy so like the noise the louder it is the better like when the like if it's consistent it sounds like right constant fire or or like uh, that's artillery fire doesn't bug you but Silence. Ceiling fan going off. <laughs> I can't sleep. Much. I can't sleep through silence either. But oh, obviously, not for uh, not because I've been exposed to artillery fire. So, Dan, thank you for your service and thank you for the wonderful story. Mackling, McGarry, and McNabb, thank you very much for joining us this morning on The Start. Hal Anderson, the host of Connecting Winnipeg, joins us in our next segment to tell us what he's got coming up after 10 o'clock. But right now, we want to talk about how Canadians and those with Ukrainian origin are volunteering to fight the Russian invasion. As we told you earlier this week, that includes a member of Valor FC, Global Sean O'Shea. Reports. As the war in Ukraine rages on, there are Canadians stepping up to defend the country, like Paul Hughes, north of Calgary, a former Canadian military man, now on his way to the war-torn country. I haven't helped one person yet, but I'm about to. Why have you decided to go now? In Toronto, I meet 61-year-old Ivan Babinski, a Ukrainian who recently became a Canadian citizen. He's flying out too. It's also my duty as a Ukrainian to go help my brothers. For 22-year-old Ukrainian-born soccer player Sivatik Artemenko, raised in Winnipeg since the age of two, that meant signing up with Ukraine's army. He's in Odessa now. Ukraine has always been a country, is a country, and will be a country. And at the moment, uh, for it to keep being a country, um, this is what I need to do. So it's not unprecedented for Canadians to travel en masse to fight independent of the Canadian military and and for fighting for a cause in which they believe. People might not know this, but I and I learned this this, this week, Greg, that between 1936 and 1939, some 1,700 Canadians or nearly 1,700 Canadians defied their government and volunteered to fight in the Spanish Civil War. That led our next guest to write the book, Renegades, Canadians in the Spanish Civil War. Yeah, the book has described Loren as an intimate and unflinching story of idealism and courage, duplicity and defeat. Our guest is an adjunct research professor in the Department of History at Carleton University. He is the historian, veterans experience at the Canadian War Museum. Michael Petro is a former foreign correspondent who reported on wars in Afghanistan, Iraq 
and elsewhere. Good morning, Michael. Thank you for taking time with us today. Good morning. Thank you for having me. So before we get into the Canadians who made their way to Spain, can you give us sort of a high-level tutorial about the Spanish Civil War itself? Sure. There was, in Spain in 1936, there was a, a left-leaning government, um, which, you know, aligned itself roughly with fascist Italy, Nazi Germany, part of this kind of rightward uh, shift in the world at the time. And, sorry, that was the left-wing government was in defiance of that. And uh, a coup, the Spanish army, uh, rebelled against this left-wing government um, with the backing of uh, fascist Italy and Nazi Germany. And so we had a civil war. So it became, it became a little bit of a, a symbol between this, this much larger global clash of the fascist right and the, the democratic and indeed the communist left that was happening all over Europe. Um, and Spain seemed to be a, a symbol of this, of this larger struggle. So this, this resonated far, far beyond Spain, which is why a lot of volunteers from all over the world, including Canada, uh, came to, to fight on uh, fight in Spain in defense of the Spanish government against this this right-wing fascist coup. So the nearly 1,700 Canadians that went, Michael, were they Canadian? Like, were they Spanish nationals? What was there a connection to many of them to Spain? Who were they? Yeah, that, that's, that's a great story. A lot of them were from Winnipeg, actually. Um, and they didn't have family ties to Spain. Uh, they saw what was happening in Spain as part of this this this, this larger struggle. So... Although it might seem odd to think, you know, what does someone in Canada, you know, facing the poverty of the Great Depression and some of the, you know, the, the heavy-handed measures against unemployed folks, especially, you know, in the prairies and out west, you know, what does it have to do with Spain? But for a lot of the volunteers in Canada, they saw this, again, as part of this much, much larger struggle. And a lot of them were immigrants and saw what was happening in Spain as perhaps reflective of, you know, various causes they'd left behind, uh, when they immigrated to Canada, including Irish Republicans, uh, you know, Ukrainians that were uh, that were opposed or believed that Poland was uh, was occupying Western Ukraine. So there's a variety of causes, and Spain became this almost like this screen on which people were projecting their their proxy struggles. But the the biggest of those struggles, again, was this this global confrontation. I mean, this is this was the age of you know appeasement. Uh, you know, fascism was on the march in Europe, and the response of the uh, the, de- the democracies, you know, understandably in a lot of ways, was not to challenge them. We, we know this, of course, is a mistake, but you know, this is the age of, of, of Chamberlain, and and just this idea: we just if we give Germany a little bit, we give them a little bit more, maybe we can avoid war. And for a lot of people, Spain was the time to say, no, we need to take a stand. Uh, now in order to avert a larger conflict. So the official stand of the democracies was not to get involved, but a lot of individuals, thousands of them, tens of thousands, uh, made the decision to get involved on a, to make that personal choice to, to, to fight in Spain. So the, how are these individuals who were lucky enough to return to Canada uh, received? Uh, poorly. Um, they, they had defied the Canadian government to fight in Spain. Um, they were seen as being you know, communist, uh, and many of them, in fact, were communists, of course. They were seen as being part of this communist revolutionary threat. Um, so it wasn't as bad as in the United States, but some of them were uh, prevented from joining up to enlist in the, the Second World War, which was ironic because a lot of them had said, look, you know, we had, 
you know, we were fighting Hitler and the Nazis because, indeed, Hitler did, did send uh, armed forces, most famously his Condor Legion, to Spain. Uh, so a lot of these Canadians said, look, you know, we were fighting, you know, we were fighting Hitler two years ago. You know, of course, you know, we want to continue this. We want to continue this struggle. Um, but so a lot of them were, were, and I should say, though, a lot of them were, were communists, but they were, for the most part, not ardent supporters of Soviet communism. In fact, when you're when you're reading the uh, their personnel files, some of the you know the Soviet commanders in Spain or the communist commanders would say, "Look, these Canadians are all you know politically undeveloped. You know, they're they they have anarchist tendencies." Because a lot of them were just you know they they, they were uh, these guys were you know uh, graduates of these relief camps in Canada. They were people that were crisscrossing back and forth across the prairies on the roofs of boxcars. They weren't diehard. Uh, you know, communist foot soldiers. They were people that realized, you know, there was rights and wrongs, and the wrongs were, were fascism in in Spain. So, but they were perceived as being this enormous threat. So much so that it got it got ridiculous. The most recent uh, surveillance report uh, that I was able to uncover was from 1984, uh, when the RCMP were continuing to watch uh, some of the veterans of Spain, and, and it got a little comical. You know, you you you, you I, I've read these. Uh, Report saying, you know, well, we there was a meeting and uh, it seemed to be more of a social gathering, and it was a, you know, it was a bunch of veterans getting together to share stories and drink beers. But there was, you know, an RCMP, you know, so, so someone, a bunch of RCMP guys in a van down the road uh, keeping an eye on these guys. So they were, you know, they were treated with suspicion uh, and, and some some discrimination uh, in, in 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 the years afterwards. Although now, you know, there's there, there's a monument to them. On the uh, on the shores of the uh, of the Rideau River, just down from Parliament Hill. So I think uh, I think Canadian perception has changed. The book is Renegades: Canadians in the Spanish Civil War. Michael Petro is the author, and this book uh, is from 2008. Michael and I have to tell you, I knew one of these veterans personally. He's a good friend of my grandfather. Ter- terrific man and uh, uh, passionate about his beliefs and all the things that you were talking about in terms of who these people were and who they weren't rings true for me. And he would he would talk quite passionately about you know the things that people didn't realize were happening in Spain. And you mentioned Hitler and his involvement and the Nazis and what they were doing. Uh, he always used to talk about, and maybe this happened, maybe it didn't. This is my opportunity to validate it, that, that they perfected some of their dive bombing techniques in Spain and some other things that were eventually used uh, quite extensively in the Second World War. That, that, that's absolutely true. Um, you know, the, there's a famous painting by Picasso of Guernica, which was, you know, shocked the world because it was, it was one of the first, you know, bomb, civil, bombings of a civilian target. Uh, and of course, it was dwarfed by the atrocities of the Second World War, but very much so. Some of the 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 the, the, the blitzkrieg techniques, the combined air force and and, and armor uh, that the Germans would use in the Second World War, yes, they did develop in Spain, and, and they saw they saw Spain as as very much as a testing ground. This was a chance to bloody some of their pilots. This was a chance to try out new weapons. The 88 uh, uh, howitzer being one of the being one of the main ones. So yes, I mean for a lot of the veterans, and perhaps here. Uh, you know, you're, you're this 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 man you you you, you speak of. Uh, they saw Spain as as a dress rehearsal for the Second World War, or indeed, for some of them, they say the Second World War actually began in 1936. You know, that's when, you know, that was that was the first armed clash between democracy and fascism. Just most of the democracies hadn't uh, didn't step in at the time. Yeah. 
Yeah, I would say in retrospect, that's exactly how uh, how um, he saw it. And so, uh, what do we learn from this? And and just how powerful an experience was it for you to to speak to some of these individuals, Michael? Well, it's always a, a, a privilege to, to to speak with with people who directly experience history themselves. And I think, you know, I'm I'm a historian now, and you know, we do learn so much from archival records and you know, documents and diaries and reports and whatnot. But to be able to, to, to speak to people that, you know, that saw these things and smelled these things and, and, and made the decisions that maybe they, you know, that you can't get that. You know, they, they made these decisions based on emotions and convictions that never really show up and never really show up in print. It's pretty special. And, you know, it, and it was, a very, it was a powerful experience for a lot of these guys. They were only in Spain for a year or two, most of them. But I remember interviewing one man on his deathbed, you know, 60, 70 years later, and what he wanted to have with him as he as he passed on were were mementos from Spain. These were up, you know, these were up on the wall of his uh, of his palliative care room. You know, another Canadian who died in 1980 something, I found his uh, his gravestone, and uh, again, long, long life. He was only in Spain for a year. But uh, what he, the epitaph that he had on his, on his grave was a, a line from a, a, a Lorca poem, a Spanish poet, uh, about the town of Cordoba, where the Canadians had fought outside but never, never captured. Uh, and you know, the line was, although I know well the roads, I will never make it to Cordoba. And, and this, is what, this is what he wanted on his gravestone. So I think it was a very powerful uh, experience for the Canadians who took part, and, and indeed it was for me to, uh, to learn from them as well. Michael, thank you so much for this. We appreciate you very much. Thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure. Michael Petro is the author of Renegades, Canadians in the Spanish Civil War. He's an adjunct research professor in the Department of History at Carleton University and a historian veteran's experience at the Canadian War Museum, former foreign, foreign correspondent who reported on wars in Afghanistan, Iraq, and elsewhere. Hey, thanks for listening to The Start Podcast. We are available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, wherever you find your favorite podcasts. Subscribe now and never miss an episode. And if you like what you hear, rate the show, tell us what you think, and hey, even tell a friend about the podcast. Be sure to follow us on Twitter and Instagram. Greg is at GMACWPG, that's G-M-A-C-K-W-P-G. I am at Brett McGarry, B-R-E-T-T-M-E-G-A-R-R-Y. And Loren on Twitter is at McNab on Global and on Instagram at McNab on CJOB. Talk soon.